Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. We're tracing the footsteps that changed the world. And today, we're going to trace some smaller footprints. Stick with. The road ahead sits at an incline, an incline that just kind of carries on into the horizon. It's a dreadful sight for a tired traveler with sore legs pulling a cart. Yet this road that goes upward carries a lot of symbolism. See, for thousands of years, God's people walked this very road to Jerusalem every year, the the city on a hill. And as they walked up, they sang songs of ascent, songs written and sang on this road as they ascended to the city. It's recorded in the Psalms. It's It's a songbook that's written as we ascend to the presence of God. It's special, yet it's still exhausting to travel this road. Today, a group of more than a dozen climb together. Half a dozen carts bounce along the road, carts full of luggage and food and water and offerings for the temple up on top of the hill. The men hunch over as the road grows steeper. The women herd the children to stay near the caravan, but the children, they just struggle to listen, though. It's it's too exciting. They're almost there. And tonight they'll be in Jerusalem, the city of God, the city that they've learned about ever since they were little kids, the city that they've learned about in the synagogue, the city that they sing about, the city that everybody talks about, like the excitement, it's just, it's hard to contain. So one of the moms come up with a brilliant idea. She begins to sing one of the songs of ascent. Well, this might channel the kids' excitement. This might focus them as, as the city above grows bigger on the horizon. First one mom begins to sing, and then another mom joins in. They've been singing these songs since they were little girls. And then the men begin to join in, and now the children that run alongside them chime in as well. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let my foot slip. It's this beautiful song written for this very road that they travel. One boy in the group runs his hand alongside the overgrown brush along the path. He sings softly with his eyes fixed on Jerusalem. There's a special excitement in this boy because in many ways this trip is for him. Soon he'll be 13 years old. It's a special birthday for a Jewish boy. And before a Jewish boy would turn 13, his parents would take him to Jerusalem and show him the special city and the temple and different sites of the holy city. This would help prepare the boys for their upcoming ceremonial 13th birthday. It's a special time for him. It's a special age for him. It's a special tour ahead in a special city. And a special story is about to unfold Luke chapter 2, verse 41, if you have your Bibles in front of you, Luke writes this, he writes, now his, meaning Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Now this is not Jesus' first time in Jerusalem. He was there as a baby. And if you look at verse 41, verse 41 says that his parents made the trip every year to celebrate Passover. Jesus probably went with them in the years prior. He likely knows the city. And to Jesus... This is like, this is a big city for Jesus. He's from the hick town, Nazareth, a podunk town, uh, not big enough for a dollar general. It's a town of caves. In fact, people would poke fun at Nazareth, that there's still cave dwellers that live in Nazareth. And so for Jesus to walk into Jerusalem, it's just like, it's enchanting. 
Like the history of this, the, the massive walls, the, the markets, the, the crowds, the towering temple. It's not just energy, it's this, this spiritual energy. But this time it's different. Part of this trip is for him to get the formal tour. Verse 43, and when the feast was ended, weekend is over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So they lose Jesus. Now, to give them credit, during this time, um, when you would travel far, you would travel in a, in a caravan, in a group. So in this group, it would have been you know, Mary, Joseph, it would have been Jesus, likely his younger siblings, uh, probably his cousins, his neighbors, some close friends. And sometimes, actually often, when a caravan from one village um, would, would set out, they would combine with a caravan from another neighboring village. Like The, the bigger the group, the, the more safety the travels, because there's safety in numbers. So this caravan could have been well more than 30 to 40 people. And I get how they lost Jesus. In these caravans, the women would typically be in the front with the kids, kind of herding the kids along the path. And in the back would be the men pulling the carts. You got to remember, Jesus is 12 years old. So he's in that in-between stage of being in the front with mom and the kids, but also being in the back with the men. So he's like right in that awkward, in-between, hitting puberty stage. And so Mary's in the front, probably thinking, hey, he's in the back with Joseph. Like he's He's old enough now. He's becoming a man. Meanwhile, Joseph is dragging the cart thinking, Jesus hasn't been back here with the men yet. He's probably up with Mary, his mom. It's not where he always is. On top of that, when you have a large group of people like this, it's easier to lose the kids. Right? They're playing together. They're running around. They're, they're running off. And as a parent, maybe it's not good, but this is what I do. Right? As a parent, you go, they're fine. They're together. They'll watch out for each other, which was true. For them, except Jesus was never with them. And so they lose Jesus. You ever lose a kid? Yeah, it's got to feel awful. Personally, I don't know what it feels like because I'm not a terrible parent. Uh, no, no, I'm, I, I'm guilty. Nicole and I, we, we lived up at camp this last summer. And uh, one, day, one afternoon, I had Reese, our youngest, and I came into the dining hall one evening for dinner. And, and Nicole met me there, and she's like, uh, where's Reese? I was like, what do you mean? Like, Reese, you had her. I was like, oh, yeah, I did. I had no idea. Like, all, all the kids, you know, were playing together. It was just like, oh, I'll just let them run off and, and just kind of lost track. It's, it's the worst feeling, like running around, checking the lake, yelling into the woods. Luckily, I found her at the canteen bumming ice cream off middle schoolers. But it was a terrible feeling up until that point, right? You're, you're searching high and low. You're hoping you don't find them floating in the lake or, or hurt. You're hoping, like, the wrong person didn't find them first. Like, it's awful. Like a couple months ago, I, uh, you probably saw this on the news or like on social media, it's like really big. There's a boy uh, like blocks from here uh, who went missing. And it was 9 p.m. And I found out about this on Facebook. I was just getting ready for bed because I'm an old man, go to bed early. I was like, I can't go to bed. There's a boy missing. So I threw on my boots and I called a few staff guys and, and we just we went out and like cased the neighborhood and, and we're looking for the, for the poor kid and his poor parents. Luckily, he was found. He like took a nap in his parents' van. But just a terrible feeling. So you, you imagine what's going on here. The caravan's been traveling all day. They're a day away from Jerusalem. It's an exhausting day. Kids are exhausted from running around and traveling. Joseph is beat from pulling the cart. The sun sets over the Judean hills as they make camp. And the fire crackles, sending embers into the dark sky. And the wives share their soups and exchange packed bread that they got from the market in Jerusalem 
And the men let out a sigh as they sit down, rubbing their sore feet as they warm by the fire. And the kids come trickling back from playing. There's Simon, and there's David, there's Sarah, and there's Jesse, and there's Isaac, and there's Rebecca. Guys, where's Jesus? We don't know. We haven't seen him all day. Joseph! And soon the plates that are half eaten, they sit on the ground as the whole campus trying to look through the darkness for Jesus. And what do they do now? I mean, what would you do? Like verse 44, they're a day's travel away from Jerusalem. So what decision do you make now? Like, do you go back? It's dark. It's dangerous. Like they can't see anything now. But what if he's out there in the darkness? Like does Joseph take off in the night? Like Mary, I, I, I'll go now. Try to get some sleep. Meet me in Jerusalem tomorrow. Just try to hold it together, babe. I'll see you tomorrow. All the way back to Jerusalem, Mary's crying for Jesus. She hasn't slept. The, the whole caravan is yelling for Jesus all along the road, asking every passerby, did you see a little boy? Did you see a boy? And if we were Mary, some of us would be thinking, man, God chose me to raise God, and I lose him. I'm going to hell. Actually, we're all going to hell. This can't be how it ends, can it? Meanwhile, Joseph is running through Jerusalem, checking every alleyway, every corner, retracing their steps. Every time he hears the laughter of boys, he studies the group to, to see if one of them is his son. Like this is just total panic. Verse 46 is after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Here's what's going on. Immediately after Passover in Jerusalem during this time, out of towners would all leave Jerusalem, just like Jesus' family left Jerusalem. Um, but this is the time when the rabbis and the religious leaders and the theologians, they would stay in town and they would all head to the temple to talk. It was like a conference, if you will. So the out-of-town religious leaders, they would stay and they would meet and they would debate and they would discuss theology right after Passover at the temple. This would happen every year at this time. And so there they all are, right? The PhDs of Israel sitting in the temple, they're talking theology, they're, they're debating interpretations. This is like dry, deep discussion. This is like religious C-SPAN, if you will. And there in the room sits 12-year-old Jesus. He hasn't even been bar mitzvahed yet. And he's enjoying this. Like he is, he is tuned in. He's keeping up with the discussion and he's adding different perspectives and he's at, adding different thoughts and he's asking questions that most people don't even think of. And at first, the PhDs are just kind of laughing about it, right? Oh, this is just so cute. Look at this boy. He's like trying to keep up with our discussion. Isn't this really sweet? But then 20 minutes in, they're blown away. This guy hasn't left yet. He's not bored. He's like tracking with us. He's even challenging us. He's far beyond our interns that we brought with. The PhDs are trying to keep up with his mind. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, now, the question that we have to ask ourselves here when, when we get to this verse, we gotta like stop and we have to ask ourselves, how? How could this be that a 12-year-old could amaze Israel's PhDs as he commented on the law and prophecies and scriptures? Like they would move on from one text to another and then Jesus would just right there go with them. How did Jesus know so much? And if we had to answer this, if we like went around the room and all answered this, most of us would probably say, and this is what I would have said, well, he's God. Right? That's the popular answer to be expected. Like he's God wrapped in flesh. This is how he knew all the answers, right? Honestly, I think that's a cheap answer. Of course he's God, but this is not a miracle. 
Jesus' first miracle will come 18 years later in a little town called Cana. We're going to talk about that in two weeks when he turns water to wine. John said that was Jesus' first sign. So this is not a sign. This is not a miracle. And too often people will read this and they'll conclude, well, he's God. Of course, he knew the answers. But that does a disservice to Jesus' humanity. And it also makes us miss something really incredible here. The reality is that if we were to be in the temple that day in the mountain city of Jerusalem, we're sitting there on one of the hard benches listening to this boy with a voice that cracked speak more than we ever even knew. Inwardly, we would be humiliated. We would have sat there on the hard benches thinking, it is shameful how little I know about God's word. This 12-year-old is so far beyond me. It's why we want to dismiss this and say, well, he's God, so like, that's why. Well, let's not do that. So how does he know so much? The answer is, the great commandment in Scripture is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. Confession, I, have, I haven't loved God with all of my mind. Had I been loving God with all of my mind my whole life, this sermon would be far more eloquent I have not loved God with all of my mind. I venture to say you have not either. To relentlessly pursue God, not just emotionally or, or spiritually, but, but mentally, stretching your mind on your own, going all out to get to know him better, to understand him better, to meditate on his words, for it to always be on your lips. To be candid with you, I, I've never seen a person like that. I, I, I've run into people before and I thought, wow, they really love God with their mind. Like they are growing in their knowledge and their understanding. They have so much memorized scripture. It's inspiring to run into those people, but nothing like this. Here we have a 12 year old, in a sense, putting us to shame in a good way. It's a, it's a push for us to love God with our mind more. There has to be this obsession in us, a relentless dissatisfaction. I, I need to go deeper. I need to understand God more. I'm not going to be lazy and put that on the preacher like many do. My pastors need to go deeper and use bigger words. As a pastor, I say, well, just feed yourself. You're, you're big enough. This, this is a personal responsibility. Heck, even a 12-year-old boy can do it. See, I'll let you in on something. Uh, we see the weekends, like what we're doing right now, the corporate gathering of believers, I see my job as, as simply just wetting all of our appetites to eat more on our own during the week. Like this is like, this is an appetizer for the week for us to go home and then dig into the main course where we're all at. This is not the main course of our spiritual diet. This is a corporate gathering where we learn together, be reminded together at a level where we can all participate, but then on our own, we go home and we go deeper. We memorize on our own. We press in and we wrestle with God's word at a personal level. That's our responsibility. And these little footsteps, these little 12-year-old footsteps are showing us that really matters. Someone who goes all out to love God with their mind, you can see the difference in that person. It amazed everyone at the temple that day. So the packed room is amazed. They're sitting there listening to this child prodigy again, with a cracking voice, talking about theology, when a somewhat disheveled couple crashes through the back doors. Looks like they hadn't slept in days. They probably haven't. They feverishly scan the room until they see the 12-year-old sitting with the PhDs. The woman, Mary, tugs on her husband's robe. Joseph, there he is. He's alive. 
verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. This is kind of a difficult predicament here, isn't it? Like Mary's emotional. We would all be emotional here. Like this is when the emotions just kind of all spill out and we sound angry. Even though we're not angry, we just kind of sound angry. Where have you been? It's been three days. At the same time, this is Jesus. This is God in flesh. You can't really reprimand him, can you? Like you can't ground God, can you? So like whose fault is this? What do you say? And I love Mary. She's very, very smart. I like how she plays this. She's so good. She doesn't come in yelling, like, get your back in the caravan. So she says, why do you treat us this way? Come on, been up for days. You gave me a few gray hairs. Why would you do that to me? And Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Even at 12 years old, Jesus answers a question with a question. When I lost Reese, I found her at camp eating ice cream. I should have known that she'd be stuffing her face with Blue Moon ice cream, hanging out with middle schoolers. In the same way, Jesus says, shouldn't have been difficult for you to find me. Did you not know I would, I'm gonna be in my father's house. If I were Joseph, I'd have been like, get the caravan, right now. But there's something playing out deeper here and it's really easy to miss. According to Jewish writings, not scripture, but the Midrash, and the Midrash is like a commentary on the Torah. According to those writings, only a few people knew God directly. So Abraham was one of those people who like knew God, had this like special connection with God. And the Midrash also said that the coming Messiah would also have this special connection with God. And so when Jesus, when Jesus says this, it's almost as if he's still in this intellectual conversation that he's been having with the PhD sitting around him. Jesus says this, but you know, he's also saying, I, I want to be here, mom. I'm drawn here. I want, to, I want to be connected with God here because in a very veiled way, he's saying, mom, dad, I'm the Messiah. I have a connection with God unlike anyone else. I'm gonna always gravitate to God's presence, to God's house, to God's community. I have a connection with God. So if we get separated again, you're probably gonna find me where God's people gather. Can you say the same thing? Do you gravitate toward the meeting of God's community? Or does it not take much for you to skip? Verse 50 says, and they, Mary and Joseph, did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. So they didn't connect this veiled Messiah comment. Oh, they knew that Jesus was God's son, virgin birth. They knew who Jesus was, but Luke writes, they didn't really understand the depth of Jesus' response about this connection with God. Verse 51 says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So they go back home. They walk back that road down the hill, this time with Jesus by their side. And Luke makes sure to include, he's submissive. He does what his parents ask him to do. He watches his younger siblings. He helps out around the house. He does chores like a normal kid. And Mary treasures all of this. It's hard to imagine. I mean, Mary asks God to wash the dishes and he does it. Mary asks God to watch the younger kids so that her and Joseph can have some together time. And God does that. 
Like raising God wasn't always convenient. Virgin birth, people didn't believe that. Even later, the, the religious leaders called Jesus the equivalent of an SOB. A lot of people didn't believe this whole virgin birth stuff. This is hard on Mary. What God has done has made Mary's life hard in many ways, but in other ways, man, he's just fantastic to have around the house. He's a great role model for his younger siblings. He's a blessing to her. And so, of course, she just treasured all of this in her heart. Here's God in flesh in her home being submissive to her and Joseph. I mean, what a gift that is. And then Luke finishes out by saying, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He continued loving God with his mind. His mind grew, his body grew, stature, he became a man, his voice got lower, he grew a beard. And as he did, he grew closer to God and he inspired those around him. And a lot of that goes back to verse 51. This verse goes back to verse 51. He was submissive to who he was called to be submissive to. And that grew his popularity. People who are unsubmissive tend to be the most miserable, lonely people. Jesus wasn't that. And that attracted people to him, setting him up to change the world. Three lessons that we get from this. According to the text, how do we lose Jesus? Not that we want to, but often we do. And we can sit here in this auditorium, we can think, come on, Mary, Joseph, like, didn't you check to make sure Jesus is with you before you left Jerusalem? How could you lose Jesus? Like, we can sit here and we can pile on. Problem is, is we do this. I do this, you do this. We do this spiritually. Some of us are in here because we, we're trying to find Jesus. We're not sure if we have Jesus in our lives, and so we're in church, hoping to find him. And you're in the right place, by the way. Others of us, we grew up loving Jesus, but we walked off and we lost our way. We lost Jesus, so to speak. And then there's a good amount of us. We're churchgoers. We're in church on the weekends, sing the songs, try to read the Bible, try to pray, do what's right. But a lot of us walked in here tonight just losing that freshness. Somebody would say, do you have like a passion for Jesus? You say, ah, I don't know. I used to. Kind of lost that wonder and that awe of God in us. It's all become mundane, even, even tiresome. We, we don't have that drive to, to get into God's word or to, to love. We don't have that passion that, that, that we once had. And we blame it on, you know, life. Life got busy. You know, blame it on the church. Church just doesn't have the pizzazz that it used to. Or yeah, the pastor's getting boring. Or the songs we sing are meh. But the reality is, those moments we try to read our Bible or pray, it's, just, it's not what it used to be. It's just be, kind of become mundane. And some of us are starting to feel like, yeah, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm kind of losing Jesus. Could be. Three ways to lose Jesus. Number one, expect him to follow you. Expect him to follow you. Now, to be fair, Joseph and Mary should have expected Jesus to follow them, right? They were the parents. That's why Luke includes later on, hey, Jesus was submissive. He wasn't like a bad kid. But even as a 12-year-old, he's sending us a message. We follow Jesus, not the other way around. So Joseph and Mary, they leave Jerusalem with their own travel plans and their own times and their own destination. Jesus has different plans. And the same is true with us. How many of us are living life that way? We're just doing our own things. We go where we want, do what we want, around who we want, and little by little, we're just losing Jesus because he has different plans. Jesus is going elsewhere around other different people. See, this idea, this speaks so loud to us today because we live in a time where, I shouldn't say everyone, a lot of us force Jesus into our own worldview. And as a pastor, I just gotta say, I've heard some crazy stuff. Like, well, Jesus was a socialist because he fed 5,000. So he was for handouts. I've heard that. 
Like taking Jesus, someone who transcends any sort of political ideology, make him to promote socialism. You know, well, Jesus seemed to be a Democrat to me. Ah, he seemed to be a Republican to me. No, Jesus is so far better than either. Or I've heard, you know, well, Jesus would have worn a mask because that's loving. Flip side, I've heard, no, Jesus wouldn't have worn a mask because he wouldn't have spread fear. It's forcing Jesus into our own opinions. You know, I'm doing this, therefore, Jesus would have. Like, Jesus follows us. I've heard uh, Jesus would have gotten the vaccine. No, 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 Jesus wouldn't have gotten the vaccine. Jesus would have marched with these people. Jesus would have voted this way. That is so sinful. We do this with our opinions. Schooling should be done this way. Jesus would, Jesus would agree with me. Music should be this way. Jesus would have, would have sang that. Preaching should be this way. That's what Jesus would have done. Opinions. If it's not clear in scripture, it's just an opinion. And it's fine to have an opinion, but don't force Jesus into it. Because bottom line, that's sin. Expecting Jesus to follow you and your desires and your worldview and your agenda. See, the reality is, Jesus doesn't fit your agenda or my agenda because he has his own. And it's a greater agenda. Jesus is greater than socialism. He's greater than masks. He's greater than the vaccine. He's greater than your preferred political affiliation or preaching style or music style. How wretched of us to force him down into our mud, into our political system, into our sin-stained opinions and make him follow us. Jesus doesn't do that. It's like my oldest, Madison. Uh, when she was three, she, uh, she did, I don't remember what she did, but Nicole was reprimanding her for something, like giving her, you know, like the, the lecture. And, uh, and so after Nicole gets done reprimanding Madison, Madison's, you know, upset as a three-year-old. And she looks at me and she grabs my hand and says, come on, dad, let's get out of here. Which is kind of funny, but also really bad, right? She can't tear mama and I apart, like we're one. Also, I'm not gonna follow a three-year-old, that would lead to chaos. Yet we do this. Bible says that. Come on, Jesus, let's get out of here. I like you, I just don't like what the Bible says. It's outdated. Elders have asked me to do this. Come on, Jesus, let's get out of here. I like you, I just don't like who you placed me under and told me to submit to. I like you, just not your church. Jesus doesn't do that. He won't follow you. And I wonder how many of us, following Jesus is just simply doing what we want, doing what we feel like, carrying around our opinions, and making Jesus just co-sign to all that. And Jesus would say, okay, let's just be clear then, you're not following me, and I refuse to follow you. I'm not following a three-year-old. So where does that leave us? See, followers of Jesus isn't a label we bear, but steps that we take. It's not this label that we just carry around to do whatever we want with. No, it's actual steps that we take. It's waking up in the morning, each morning, and going, okay, God, teach me. Would you just please teach me? And that, that's such a big, big request that God will never turn down when we pray. God, will you just teach me? You teach me. What do you, what do you want? Like, I got what I want, but I am broken. What do you want? How, what do I need to surrender today? Will you just teach me what I need to surrender in my life? Which opinions and, and views and habits do I, just, do I need to let go of? See, following Jesus means surrendering, dying to yourself, which means just surrendering your agenda. And don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to have an opinion. I've got opinions. It's not wrong to have a worldview. I have a worldview. It's not even wrong to have a politic. I have a politic. But we can't expect Jesus to just follow us into that. We must understand we are broken. We are stained with sin. We're a three-year-old. And the ultimate goal is to arrive where he's at, not 
where we think he should go. It's a hard lesson, but it is lodged right here in Luke chapter two. How many of us are living our lives just hoping Jesus is following us? And then we look around and go, okay, where's Jesus? I feel distant. Because he won't follow you. Number two, second way to lose Jesus is stay away from his community. We're going to see this play out in, in the coming weeks over and over and over, but what we see here in a special way when he's 12 years old, Jesus gravitates toward the gathering of God's people. I hear all the time that church is messed up. I like Jesus. It's just the church is, church is broken. Of course it is. But also the temple during this time was too. The synagogues were broken. It was the leaders of these that put Jesus to death. Yet Jesus still gravitated toward the gathering of God's people, despite the brokenness. In Mark, Jesus relaxes in the temple, just enjoying people enter, watching people enter into the temple. He just sits there and he just enjoys that. He's constantly visiting synagogues and, and teaching and doing community. But then we see here as a kid, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he heads to the temple. What 12-year-old boy does that? Most 12-year-old boys are running through the gates, snatching pomegranates from the marketplace, teasing the camels, spying on all the cute girls. Jesus' little footprints go right to where God's people gather. And that says a lot. So many people lose Jesus because they walk away from his community. And I am not saying that the church saves, but we are the physical family of God. Jesus' footsteps always lead to the gathering of God's people. He is faithful to his people. It is where you find him, with his bride. That's why he says to his mom, you were looking for me. Why were you looking for me? You should have known where I'm at. I'm gonna be with God's people. What about you? COVID did a, did a number on a lot of things, didn't it? Might have done a number on your business. Uh, did a number on economy, small businesses, education. And it did a number on the church, church unity, church attendance. But in a way, to, to look at it, to kind of spin it, to look at it from more of a positive perspective, COVID was also this, pure, this time of purification for the church. It forced us to come to terms with our priorities. How important is Jesus' family to me? Am I in or am I out? And it brought us to this point of decision. And that is where Jesus keeps wanting, wanting to bring us. You and you out. Are you with my family? Are you with the community? Are you gravitating to that which I gravitate toward too? Or are you staying away from it? Third way to lose Jesus is remain in the shallow end. Remain in the shallow end. I love the ocean. It's by far my favorite environment. Like the, the, the smell of the salt in the air, the, the power of the waves, the, the warm sand. It's just it's my favorite place. And each year we, we, take the, uh, we take my girls to the ocean. And my youngest and I, uh, we always head out to the deep, to the big waves. Um, we just, we love it. She's like a water bug. Uh, the other two, my, my older two, um, they're a bit more cautious. You know, they want to stay more in the shallow end where everything is more easy and, and familiar. And so when they run into the water, I'll be on the deep end with, with Reese, but I'll come to the shallow end to, to meet them and get them. But I don't want to stay in the shallow end. I want to go back out to the deep end. That's what Jesus, that's, that's how Jesus is spiritually. He doesn't want to stay long in the shallow. He'll, he'll come and get you. You come to faith and, and you know, you're learning the Bible for the first time, like who's who and where's where and how do I even read this thing? Like Jesus loves that. He's going to meet you there. But he doesn't want to stay there. Jesus meets you where you're at, but he never plans on just staying there. He wants to continue to take you to deeper waters. Okay, what's that next step to something deeper 
where you're going to be challenged more. We're going to be challenged to understand more. We're going to be challenged to love more. We're going to be challenged more to be like Jesus. We're going to challenge to be submissive. You're going to challenge to surrender something. But how many of us, we're just rarely challenged. When was the last time you were challenged spiritually? I've been a believer for years. We just kind of like the shallow end. We got to this point, we said, okay, that's deep enough. It's just a little calmer here. It's more familiar. I don't want to rock the boat. I, d- I don't want to risk the waves. And some of us feel further from Jesus because he's in the challenge. He's in the depth. He's in the deeper water. And until you wade out further and leave your comfort and your familiar, Jesus is just going to feel distant. So what are you going to do? I love Menards. How's that for a transition? (laughs) I I could spend all day at Menards. Like the the smell of the lumber, playing with the tools. I'm like a little kid. Uh, You know it's a great store when you can go to the store in one store and you can buy materials for a shed and then restock your pantry at home. It's just like, it's a beautiful wonderland. I used to work at Menards in high school just because I love the place so much. I remember when I was a kid, my dad would take me when, when, uh, when I was little because my dad built the, the first house that we lived in. And so he would constantly go to Menards and he'd bring me with and he'd go to find a tool. And I'd walk in, I'd just be mesmerized the whole time. I remember one time I, I was mesmerized, a little too mesmerized because uh, I started looking around and he was nowhere in sight. Like I thought he'd follow a, three around, a three-year-old around. And so I started freaking out. Like, Where's my dad? I kind of wonder if... if if you're there spiritually. You know, somewhere this past year, you were challenged with something. Or some, somewhere this past decade, you were challenged with something. And then it wasn't too long after that, though maybe you haven't connected that, but it wasn't too long after you were challenged and didn't take the challenge that you started to feel like you kind of lost sight of Jesus. The, the passion just really isn't there. And the truth is, is because he went somewhere you just weren't willing to go. You were challenged to go deeper somewhere. You were challenged to give up some comfort somewhere, to surrender something somewhere. He asked you to do something you, just, you wouldn't do. Maybe he was leading something, or maybe he was submitting to something, or maybe he was just being content, or maybe he was humbling yourself. Maybe he was apologizing to someone, but for whatever reason, you just you couldn't take the challenge. And then like me and Menard, you're kind of looking around going, whoa, 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 where'd you go? And he feels distant. Where's Jesus? I don't have that passion. I lost it. The truth is, he's that next step that you're, that you're struggling to take. He's in that challenge that you wouldn't take. And I don't know any other way to say it, to end. Would you just take it? Would you take the challenge? One of my favorite verses in scripture was written by Jesus' little brother, James. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is a promise that we as believers, that we just hold on to. I just want to draw near to God. He's going to draw near to me. And this is how I'm going to live my life, just continuing to draw near to God. But it's taking that next step into deeper waters. It's taking that step that you've been struggling to take. And so the question is, so what? Have you lost Jesus? 
feel like you're losing Jesus? Have you lost a little bit of that passion? That, that wonder of God in us? Have you lost it? Where'd you lose it? Where's that challenge, that, that step into more depth that God has been asking you to take that you just won't take? That's the, that's the question that we're all gonna leave with today. What's your next step toward Jesus? What is it for you? And, and all of us are gonna have different answers to this question. For some of us, it's gonna be my next step is, is deciding to make him Lord and Savior of my life and just surrendering my life to Jesus Christ. But for others of us, the answer to this question might be something more like, I, I need to go and apologize. I need to fess up to that thing. I need to go sign up for this. I need to go sign up for Dusty Doctrines. That's, I, I'm just theologically anemic. And that's my next step, is I just need to love God with my mind more. For some of us, it's just, I've, I've just I, I had that hard heart, and I need to submit to what God is asking me or who God is asking me to submit to. But what's that next step for you toward Jesus? We all have that next step, and that should be a question. This should be a question that we are just obsessed with, that we, we wake up with this question. What does it look like to follow Jesus today? What is that next step toward Jesus today? Because I wanna draw close to God, and I wanna bank on him drawing close to me like he promised. We live our lives day in and day out with this question. What's that next step? What is it for you? Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.